Welcome to the Weekly Warrior Podcast, where we are forging genuine human connection through fitness, health, mindset, and nutrition. Let's get to the show with your hosts, Jared Bradford, Connor Edelbrock, and Corey Mueller. Welcome to the Weekly Warrior Podcast. And on today's episode, I'm joined here by my wonderful mustachioed friend, Bones, and his his dog, Scout. Right? Scout's here? Yeah, he's on the floor right now. Yeah, he's the third co-host in this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Scout. Oh, we got this <laughs> ball for him? Yeah. It's a disco ball. It lights up. It's sweet. He really likes it. Um, I'm going to put it right there. He's going to stare at it. So hopefully that will distract him. <laughs> do you get, because he's, how, how old is he now? He's about five months old. So do you still get a lot of like the doggy head tilts? Oh, yeah. When he's curious, when you like, you make a noise or do something that he's like, yeah. Huh? yeah. I, uh, man, I love that. Yeah, he, he does that all the time. He also does it to the t- TV. Yep. I don't know, man. He's good. Today we, uh. Today, I let him have the yard while I left, which is the first time I, I did that, and it turned out pretty good. He's still here, so that's how I know it turned out good. <laughs> yeah. You got a fenced yard, though. He's not going nowhere. Yeah. But still, you know, first time puppy gets the yard, you don't know yeah. what they're going to dig up after a couple hours. That's true. That's true. Uh, so a while ago, you had a visit out here w- with us to California. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I sure do. <clears throat> About two months ago. No, it was yep. about five months ago. I was going to say November. Uh, yeah. Yeah, March. Yep, about five months, four or five months. Anyways, um, so we took a visit to Sequoia National Park. Yes, we did. It was really fun. A really magical place, really uh, beautiful. <clears throat> uh, if you didn't know it, the, that wasn't always accessible. Did you know that? Really? There was a time where you just couldn't get up there because it was just a big oh, forest. Yeah, sure. You know. Back in the old days. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we went and saw the giant sequoia trees. It was really, really cool. And um, so my dog's getting attacked. Scout's attacking Ryder. Stop. <laughs> right, you get to come up here and be with daddy. This is what I have to do every night for dinner because Scout <laughs> is just like bullying her. So I pick her up and like eat with one hand while she sits on my lap. She's a little baby. Yeah. So we stopped at the gift shop and I picked up a really cool uh, poster and a really cool storybook along with it. And so we're going to share what, what, what this is all about. And I thought this was going to be fairly uh, straightforward and quick, but holy fuck, there are layers to this story. Yeah. And so let's get into it because it's going to take a minute. I remember when you bought all that, I was very much looking forward to it because it's a, it seemed like a really cool story. And I had, an idea, I had a feeling that it would end up being a, an episode. Yeah. Here it is. So Sequoia National Park was established in in 1890. This made it a protected area that would be preserved for visitors, scientists, and outdoor enthusiasts for generations to come. So at the time, 1890, no funds were given to the park, um, which made improvements to the park impossible. It meant zero staff for the park and limited the park roadways, pathways to whatever was already established for like (laughs) logging and whatever else may have been going on there. So no one's working it, but it is a protected area at this time. So uh, one year later, after it opened, the U.S. Army stationed cavalry troops at the Mm. park each summer to limit forest fires, 
control poaching and control livestock, uh, as well as ensure that the trees weren't illegally felled uh, for logging. So a year after it became a national park, U.S. Army sends some, some boys in to watch over things. That was going on for about nine years. Nothing was really improved. They still had no funding. In the year 1900, intense lobbying from members in Tulare County brought about a budget of $10,000 to the park each year. Hmm. The, the use of these funds fell into the hands of those cavalrymen who worked the park each summer. So uh, between them and the local um, city, Visalia was the closest city, they kind of decided what they had to do with the ten grand. There was an agreement struck. The use of the funds should be made to use uh, to create a roadway into the heart of the sequoia trees for people to enjoy more easily. So into the giant forest where we went. We took the when me, you, Jess, and Connor went up. We took uh, the western entrance in. The roadway here would be the southern entrance, mm-hmm. um, which we took on the way down. I don't okay. know if you remember that, where it was like very yeah. zigzaggy all the way down. Oh, I remember. Um, Connor didn't have a good time. No. <laughs> no. Connor was quite pregnant and um, she actually sickness. She was not as pregnant, but way more susceptible to nausea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was good times. I was like, great. We're going on mountain roads all yeah. week. <laughs> yeah. We <laughs> went to Yosemite. Yeah. Um. So anyway, they decided, hey, let's make a roadway into the giant forest for people to get to. So this work would mean reconstructing an abandoned wagon path that currently ran to within eight miles of the giant trees. So up until this point, if you wanted to get to the giant forest, you had to hike up just through the woods. The heart of the trees nest on a canyon ridge plateau 6,000 feet above sea level. So if you remember going up there, it was, or even just going down how high up we were, it's pretty impressive. It was deceiving, too. I think the way up, it was more gradual of a climb. But the way down, it was a lot more switchbacks. It definitely felt more like a mountain road rather than like a nice, gentle, you know, travel upwards. Right. And that was the ridge side. We came up the back way, essentially, Mm -hmm. is what it was. Yep. Um, So the the work would mean reconstructing that wagon path. Um, Work was very slow as the pathway was still short by four miles after efforts in 1900, 1901, and 1902. So then, in 1903, things changed. A man by the name of Charles Young and troops I and M of the 9th Cavalry were stationed at the park. The 9th Cavalry was one of the four regiments in the U.S. Army in which African Americans were able to serve. They were nicknamed the Buffalo Soldiers Mm -hmm. due to their efforts in the Indian War. This is the story of their productive summer and how, against all odds, physically, socially, and with low funding, they helped shape and protect Sequoia National Park for generations to come. So at the time, now he's Captain Charles Young. He eventually, well, we'll get into the, what he eventually happened to him, but he, he's Captain Charles Young, and these are his troops. I and M. They consisted of 93 men and three officers when they left from San Francisco, where they were stationed and headed through the Central Valley in May of 1903 for their station in Sequoia National Park. Uh, Captain Charles Young, he was born on March 12, 1864, and was a son to to former slaves. Mm. Charles was a gifted student. He was able to participate and graduate in high school and even taught uh, under supervision of his high school principal. His dad was a freed slave, and his dad, like, somehow got a hold of, was able to purchase some land, which helped really put him ahead of 
a lot of other African-Americans at that time. So that allowed Charles to go to school and do a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 1883, he applied to West Point Military Academy. He scored the second highest on his preliminary testing and was admitted to 18, in 1884 as an alternate, cadet, can, alternate cadet. He struggled to make friendships here, however, as the few other African-American cadets were released due to low academic standing. He was the only African-American left in his class. Charles struggled to fit in and dealt with plenty of racism while at West Point prejudice. Once in the mess hall, a white cadet proclaimed that he would not take food from a platter that Young had already taken from. Young passed the white cadet the plate first, allowing him to take from it, and then himself took from the plate afterwards. Mm. It wasn't until his fifth and final year that the others began to respect his character. He uh, really didn't have any friends for the first four years, but he was fluent in German and eventually became fluent in German, Italian, English. Uh, and I think one other, I can't remember. So he would talk to others, a few other students just in German, just mm. to have like some sort of social interaction with people because wow. the American men didn't talk to him. Um, Charles graduated on April, August 31st, 1889. Between 1870 and 1889, only 23 African-American men were admitted to West Point. Of these, only 12 passed the entrance examination, the one that he scored the second highest on, and only three graduated. So in 2019 years, only three African-Americans ever graduated. Young was the third, and it took another 50 years after him until another African-American graduated from West Point. Wow. So Young went back and taught military science and tactics at Wilberforce University, which was uh, basically an all-African-American university at the time, before being deployed to the Philippines in 1901, where he led troops in the jungles against uh, insurgents. He finished his tour of duty when returned to San Francisco in 1902. On May 12, 1903, Charles and his men marched with President Theodore Roosevelt in the parade through San Francisco on the occasion of the Dewey Memorial. I don't know what the Dewey Memorial is. I threw that in there because I think you like Theodore Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. I think we do, too. I like him. He's, yeah, he's, he's a good a, guy. He's a good guy. So now Charles Captain, uh, Captain Charles Young and his men were sent to Sequoia to protect against its threats and continue to work on the road. One threat to the park was sheep. Herders mm. ushered their flocks up the Sierras for grazing, and when they did, destruction followed. John Muir wrote about the destruction of sheep in the area and how it was a bigger threat than commercial logging. Sheep would eat and destroy vegetation and slow down or eliminate potential for new growth in the now-protected national park. Uh, there was one year where... Well, actually, well that's, the, that's a later point. So uh, another threat besides sheep was logging on the private lands that remained in the giant forest. The third major threat to the area was poaching. Locals believed that troops exempted themselves from the laws of poaching as there were accounts of troops taking down game with their rifles in the giant forest. Charles helped form a law that his troops would only carry pistols while on patrol and made a statement that, quote, all wildlife will be protected in the giant forest while he was in command. Speaking of the road, uh, about six miles had been completed in three summers of work by the time Charles and his men arrived. Charles personally examined the road that would have been completed, so that has been completed so far, and the proposed remaining route. 
He made orders to begin work as soon as they arrived in May, while the ground was still soft from the wet spring season. This enabled work to be completed far more rapidly. The men did three months of work in half the time. Captain Young was so pleased with the work that the men were doing that he ordered up a party for the men um, for all of their efforts. Charles made a vow that he himself would not enter the forest until it could be done by wagon with four horses. This happened on August 30th, 1903. Hmm. So from May till August, it took them... They had six miles done, and I believe they had another four to five to go. Um, And the first six miles took three years. So -hmm. they finished the last four or five miles in May, June, July, August, three months or so. Yeah, that's impressive. Captain Charles welcomed a party of nearly 100 people from Visalia to celebrate the completion of the roadway into the giant forest. The food was all served up and cooked by Captain Charles and his men. This was a big event for the time because California very much resembled pro-South politics. Visalia was notorious around the country. Visalia was, is a city, basically one of the last larger cities that you have to go through to get to Sequoia National Park. Um, they were notorious at the time because its inhabitants refused to segregate or desegregate their school system. So they mm. wouldn't allow African-Americans to go to school uh, with other white, white, white kids. Um, so it's not a very friendly area. Um, instead of stopping work on the roadway as it reached the giant forest, which is basically what the job was, Captain Young made arrangements for the pathway to continue to popular destinations within the forest. This was something that was beyond expectations for the captain and his men. It was purely by choice, want, and to ensure visitors were able to enjoy the land. Captain Young became incredibly popular to people who visited the park and those familiar with the work he and his men were doing. They called to have one of the sequoia trees named after him, but Charles refused, saying, quote, If you feel the same way in 20 years, then a tree can be named after me. In time, a compromise was made by Captain Young and the people surrounding him, and the Booker T. Washington tree was landmarked instead. Uh, so the pathways that he made led from just the entrance of the giant forest to places like Morrow Rock, um, to the Booker, all the big name trees, Booker Tree, Washington, uh, General Sherman, which we did. That whole yep. pathway was formed by them. Yeah. Um, and uh, General Grant Tree. There's a, a, quite a few like named trees back there that all of them have passed that they made that got up there. Um, so it's not easy terrain back there either. I mean, the, um, the amount of work that would go into it yeah. is, is impressive. That's a great point. If you've, if you guys haven't, if people haven't been there, it's not flat. <laughs> not at all. It's not flat at all. We're on like a mountainside. That's where sequoia trees can grow. And the, it's constantly up and down and, and I would have to guess too. High elevation. In 1903, that there was very little machinery that they were able yeah. to use in that type of situation, because it's not like big flat land where you're just building the road. Mm-hmm. It's in the mountains and surrounded by giant trees. That's so a great point, yeah. And like the the when we hiked up and out, I mean that was some serious uh, that was some serious terrain to build a pathway on. Yeah. Especially back then. I mean, their goal is to get a wagon with horses down this road. So like right. that kind of gives you like a cue of what we're dealing with as yeah. far as, you know, assistance. Most of this was done by hand and manpower. Um, so the Booker T. Washington was landmark 
uh, tree. We have a picture with Jess in front of the Booker T. Washington tree. It's kind of mm. cool to make those connections now. Yeah. Um, Charles expressed the sensitivity that needed to be had when naming these trees. Quote, it is recommended that naming of the giant trees by irresponsible parties be stopped. Mm. So far, I know of no names placed upon the trees that would not be acceptable to the entire country. It should be so. Throughout the summer, Captain Young noticed a threat of the development that they have created. With the roadway completed, more and more tourists arrived to see the giant forest. With this comes people stealing tree bark, uh, their feet stomping at the base of the sequoias, and damage to the roots of the trees. Mm. Charles wanted to use this as an opportunity for education, so he had fences built around two of the most at-risk trees, General Sherman and General Grant. Um, so if you remember General Sherman, it's the mm. biggest tree there. It's the biggest tree in the world, or li- yeah. by volume, it's the biggest living yep. organism. There's yeah. a big-ass fence around it. Probably, it's probably not the same original fence, but he constructed the first one, and so the precedence was, was made. Yeah. It's, I, I love hearing about all this stuff because in my line of work, in this line of work, I mean, with, um, with Charles Young and everything, you have to figure out how to properly utilize this resource so people can see it and enjoy it, but also preserve it in, in a natural state so it is there, you know, 100 years from now or 200 years from now, generations yeah. to come. Yeah. And uh, that's cool. I mean, like, there was no, no one... No one outlined anything it's for him. He was just, he, he cared, and he was doing stuff that made sense. So it's co- this is a cool story. Yeah, it gets better. Um, and you're, you're saying all the right things is that this is a military guy. Right. West Point guy. Yeah. And all of the other people that came before him in this position were all military guys. They didn't know anything about forest management, park right. preservation, conservation, anything. They were sent up, and the work that they did was entirely up to them. Right. How they spent that money was entirely up to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that he's doing all this is, is pretty remarkable. Yep. So he, he got the fences formed around the General Sherman and General Grant. There was another issue at hand that was brought about with the completion of the roadway. Much of the giant forest was still laid claim to by private owners, despite it being formed a national park. It was their intention to begin logging and use the roadway to haul their timber more easily to market. This would mean the destruction of the giant forest. Basically, government comes in, builds a road, and now private entrepreneurs Mm want to take it down and use the road. Yep. Captain Young saw this as the gravest concern to the park. In order to prevent the deforestation, Captain Young sent out a park ranger and two of his men to count up sequoia trees that resided in one 80-acre parcel of land. They counted 185 trees, 160 of which were more than 10 feet in diameter, and estimated a total of 6,500 sequoia trees of great size in the giant forest. With this information, Charles was able to secure options for the purchase of these lands by the U.S. government. So basically, like, you got to like monetize the trees in the land. Yep. No one had ever done that before, so no one ever made it a proper offer to these private people until this moment. Every captain that was on duty before Charles arrived at the park tried to secure the sale of those lands by the U.S. government, but wasn't able to do so. In one summer, Charles manufactured the sale that ended up being $75,000 in total to 18 different private landowners. 
So he had to go to all 18 different private landowners, negotiate the, a deal with all 18, and get all of them to agree to the sale. Um, how many acres? Uh, I don't know if you're going to get into that, but how many acres did he buy? He, uh, yeah, I didn't, they didn't have that information. Not that I found. I know that all it was said was basically, uh, well, here we can probably figure it out. So if he was able to give a, a sale of $75,000, the price that Captain Young negotiated was approximately $18 per acre. Um, so what is the math? 75000 divided by 18. Or almost 4,200 acres. Hell yeah. So not a small piece of land. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, Congress did not act immediately on the agreement that Captain Young had in place. It took until 1916 <laughs> for Congress to allocate funds to the sale. By then, it cost $70,000 for just one of the land tracts. In 1921, the final tract was bought for $100,000. The total price for purchasing all of the land ended up being over $220,000, nearly triple what Captain Young and the private landowners mutually agreed to. Hmm. The, the, the um, General Grant Tree and Wilsonia tracks... Oh, sorry... The Wilsonia and General Grant tracks remain in private hands to this day. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, crazy. I had no idea. Um, yeah. But it's, it's just insane. He, he had such a good deal, but then, you know, Congress do what Congress does. Well, yeah, <clears throat> bureaucracy takes a long time. Yeah. Um, hey, by the end of the 1903 season, the list of accomplishments by Captain Young and his men were remarkable. Had they only finished the roadway, it would have been one of the most successful seasons in the park's early history. Hmm. People all over celebrated their efforts and were, they were seen off in Visalia with applause on their way hmm. out. So they stayed until September, I believe. May to September. The management of the park was left to U.S. Army troops who had very little relevant experience in forest management. They were sent with very little direction, and what they did in their season largely depended on the leadership's interest. Under Captain Young, the park was now made more accessible, safe, and protected for future generations to come. Young was recommended to become the permanent supervisor of the parks. So he was actually in charge of Sequoia and what was uh, called General Grant National Park, which has been changed since. Um, hmm. But at the time, it was those two that he was in charge of. He remained in contact with at least one family from Visalia over the years, and two of his sergeants returned to the area later in life to farm, having such an affection for the land. But Captain Young would never return to the area again. Hmm. He went on to become the first African-American colonel in the U.S. Army and served as the first African-American military attache. 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 Thank you. To... Caribbean Islands to the Caribbean Islands and Liberia. In a letter back to a family near Visalia, Captain Young recounted, quote, Where do you summer from the valley heat this year? A giant forest? I truly hope so. What would I not give for an hour's ride up the mountain road? The dude, it seemed like he really, really enjoyed the area and the, the work that was going on up there. Yeah. Uh, and I, I like to put those little detail in, that detail in because 
at the time as an African-American in that area, he was still sending letters to a family that he formed a relationship with. Right. And that's uh, forming relationships is so key to getting anything done. Yeah. And while he, I mean, he formed a relationship with the land too, which Mm. it's something that we still encounter, you know, in in my daily life, really what makes the difference between, you know, a good park, a good whatever, and a great one is people that are there or one person even that's there that's passionate about it and cares about it. Mm -hmm. And you see this time over time, anywhere you go, uh, like especially now that I'm in the inner workings of the DNR, you go to a park and someone really gives a shit, you can tell. Because the little things are kept up. Yeah, And um, it sounds like he really cared. And that's it's inspiring because at the time, I mean, you show up there and you're in the middle of probably what looks like an absolute mess and it's a lot of chaos. And he took control and he made it, you know, he gave it a chance to be what it is today, which yeah. I'll just say, you know, we went to Yosemite, which Yosemite was breathtaking and and wonderful. but there was something for me that was really special about Sequoia. I can't quite put my finger on it, mm-hmm. but um, the connection there was. I was going to say, I think it's, I'm going to interrupt you. I think yeah. Sequoia is much more personal Yeah, because you can get so up close to these giant yeah. beings, these organisms. And obviously these you trees. can't touch some of these, you know, like you can't touch General Grant and whatever, and, but you can still, some of these trees that are, like you said, 10 feet in diameter, 12 feet in diameter, whatever you can go up and put your hand on them. And it's, I don't know, man, it was, yeah, it was way more personal and just way more connective to, to the nature. Cause I think Yosemite is beautiful, but everything seems really far away. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's literally, you know, think of the word awesome. Like it, it inspires awe and it is awesome. Um, when you see the Dawn wall and, and all the, the, cliffs surrounding you and and whatever it's absolutely beautiful but Mm -hmm. yeah being able to put your hand on a sequoia and just feel i don't know man it was like something that's been alive for a thousand you know thousands of years in some cases uh hundreds of years is it was pretty awesome totally yeah it's something i somewhere everybody should go there at least once yeah it feels like when we were there, I remember thinking like, man, if a brontosaurus like walked by, <laughs> right. I wouldn't probably think twice about it. I'd be like, all right, well, yeah, <laughs> I'd be wow. like, all right, well, California's fucking sick. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. I was really happy we went there instead of the uh, stupid uh, aquarium. The yeah. aquarium and the aquarium is probably yeah. really cool. I'd like to go. But Sequoia was really special. Yeah, that was it was, it was awesome. Um, so African-American communities around the country followed uh, now Colonel Young's career closely. When World War I broke out, he was expected to join the conflict and be promoted to general, mm. which he would have been the first African-American general yeah. by a long shot. Yep. However, there was widespread resistance among white officers, especially those from the segregated South who did not want to be out- outranked by an African-American. Uh, a Southern white lieutenant, Albert Dockery, who served under Young, complained to the War Department that he did not wish to serve under a black man. Hmm. The Secretary of War, Newson Baker, replied that he should, quote, 
either do his duty or resign. John Sharp Williams, senator from Mississippi, complained on the lieutenant's behalf to President Woodrow Wilson. The president overruled Baker's decision and had the lieutenant transferred. Secretary of War Baker considered sending Colonel Young to Fort Des Moines, an officer training camp for African Americans. However, Baker realized that if Young were allowed to fight in Europe with black troops under his command, he would be eligible for promotion to Brigade brigadier general and it would be impossible not to have white officers serving under him so what'd they do the war department instead removed colonel young from active duty claiming it was due to his high blood pressure what a crock of shit yeah in may 1917 colonel well charles young now appealed to still colonel i suppose um colonel young appealed to theodore roosevelt to support his application for reinstatement. Roosevelt was then in the midst of his campaign to form a, quote, volunteer division for service <laughs> in France in World War I. Again, another cool thing. I was going to say, Roosevelt at this done. point, Theodore Roosevelt's like 65. Yeah. And he's trying to form a volunteer right. coalition. Right, because he wants to go. Yeah, because uh, he, he literally <laughs> will, like, petition Woodrow Wilson personally yeah. to go and fight in France. Yeah. And Woodrow Wilson is like, no bro weren't you president <laughs> you, you are far too old and you're far too much of like yeah. a national treasure basically right. to go and throw yourself at machine guns so uh, yeah, what a I, badass um so he's he's trying to do the volunteer division and once like hey well it's you know blah 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 maybe yeah. colonel young will want to go and colonel young does want to go so but he has to get permission from rose uh woodrow wilson roosevelt appears to have planned to recruit at least one or two black regiments for the division something he didn't tell president wilson or secretary of war <laughs> baker he's trying to like hey can i get permission to go but doesn't tell him like what's going on yep he immediately wrote to young offering him command of one of the prospective regiments saying quote there is not another man who would be better fitted to command such a regiment end quote Roosevelt also promised Young uh, carte blanche, blanche, blanche. I don't know if that's how you carte say Carte blanche. Carte blanche. Thank you. Which is freedom to choose who he wanted in appointing staff and line officers for the unit. However, President Wilson refused Roosevelt's permission to organize his volunteer division. So, Woodrow Wilson was a good guy, but man, how epic would that have been? Yeah, really epic. I mean... Even know, if Teddy anything. Roosevelt would have died, because he died in 1917 anyway, so like his death was impending, really. Yeah. But like, can you imagine if he went out in like a blaze of glory in the middle of World War One? I? I think he would have lived longer because like, you can if you really have motivation to do something, he like that would have given him life. Maybe yeah, maybe you know, so. I mean, he died from like a heart attack or whatever, right? He died in his sleep. His sleep. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you don't know what happens. I don't know Woodrow Wilson. It's, you can go back and be like, well, that's just the times. But there were also good people like Theodore Roosevelt that were pushing for this Charles Young and other African-Americans and minorities to be equal, especially in the uh, military. So for Wilson to be like, you know, side with other racists, you know, it's just, it's hard, right? It's hard to rationalize it because there are other people that are doing the right thing at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1918, one year after his, quote, medical retirement, he showed off his fitness by riding his horse from his home in Ohio to Washington, D.C. 
This was Colonel Young. He was reinstated in November as active duty colonel, but Secretary of War Baker did not rescind his order to have him forcibly retired. So base, I didn't know exactly what that meant. Basically, he's back in, but War- Baker was like, but not by my account. Yeah, it's like an honor. It's like an honorary yeah. uh, position. Kind of, because um, when Young was reinstated to the Army, instead of a World War I assignment, he was again assigned as a military, how do you say it? Attache. Attache. Attache to Liberia again. Hmm. It was here that he fell ill and died in hospital on January 8th, 1922 from Bright's disease, which is a chronic kidney infection. Hmm. When his body was returned to the U.S., 50,000 people lined the streets of Manhattan. Wow. Uh, it was a big issue with getting his body back to the United States. So he died on British-controlled islands. If that happens, for some reason, you have to be buried there. Uh, so it took like a lot of appealing from his uh, widow, his wife, mm-hmm. to get his body back. It took over a year to get his body back. Wow. Um, one speaker at his eulogy was Secretary of the Navy Theodore Roosevelt Jr., son of the former president. He stated, quote, no man has ever truly deserved the high repute in which he was held. For by sheer force of character, he overcame prejudices which would have discouraged many lesser men. Mm-hmm. Young's army career was marked by autonomy. He was able to do what he wanted to do for the most part. He commanded all African-American troops, and he arguably left the largest influence on national parks to date. When I say he was able to do whatever he wanted to do, for the time to be a colonel, to be promoted through the ranks as he was, and to graduate from West Point, yeah. he was able to go to Sequoia and make decisions and be in command of men where that opportunity was not afforded to a lot of other African-Americans. Right. Um, but his diplomatic missions abroad were seen, at least in part, a response to the reluctance of white soldiers to serve under African-American American officers. What I gathered from that statement was he's going to these Liberia and the Caribbean as a military attache. Yeah, there you go. When he could have been off in World War I actually fighting battles. If he was white, that's what would have happened. Yeah. Uh, this is all to outline the things that he's, he dealt with in his life and overcame. On May 31st, 1923, Colonel Young's body was carried through the streets of Washington, D.C., and some 60,000 mourners were in attendance. So this is a year after he actually died. Mm-hmm. He is buried in Arlington National Cemetery. In 1922, in recognition of his exemplary service and the barriers he faced due to racism, he was posthumously, posthumously. Thank you. <laughs> Why am I fucking up these words? <laughs> I'm gonna start there. In 1922, he, in recognition of his exemplary service and the barriers he faced due to racism, he was post posthumously, <laughs> posthumously, posthumously, posthumously. Okay. In 1922, in recognition of his exemplary service and the barriers he faced due to racism, he was posthumously promoted to Brigadier General, Mm. and a promotion ceremony was held in his honor at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. So it took almost 100 years after he was dead to get what he deserved and what he worked for. Yep. It's an awesome story. I, uh, I, 
when you when you bought the stuff at at the gift shop in Sequoia, I never would have imagined there was such a tale <laughs> that Me was neither. behind it. Yeah. Me neither. Uh it so I bought the book, which is like a twenty page little book. And sorry, let me gather my wild sheep here. Uh and I bought a little poster that went along with it, and it yep. has a portrait of Colonel Charles Young, and it's called Colonel Charles Young and the Buffalo Soldiers. Mm-hmm. And the whole book is about the summer of 1903, and I actually went more and dug into his the rest of his life on my own, because like, there's more to this story yeah. in his life that deserves to be told. So this is why it was longer than I thought. And uh, it's just, man, we the state of the country back then was so much better than it was during the civil war, but you still see the struggle that existed for a lot of these people, these guys, men and women that deserved to work just like the rest of us and be promoted and, and live the life that everyone else was, has been afforded to live and weren't able to get there just because of the color of their skin. Right. Um, but he still put in so much good work and, is really responsible for Sequoia National Park being what it is today. Seriously, yeah. It's a shame that uh that he couldn't have stayed on in some capacity and continued that work. I mean, obviously he was in the military, but um it's just cool to hear all the good stuff that he did for the, for the park because I think that influence is still very much felt and man, if I and I know his, like his stuff was in the gift shop and whatever, but I really feel like there should be more history about that mm-hmm. in the park, like yeah. on the trails. And maybe there was, and we just missed it. Um, but that's definitely something that if it were me in that position, like I'm a sucker for history. And anytime I get to find cool history, I want to like teach other people about it. Mm-hmm. And that would be something like that I would want to have out there. Cause it's yeah. a man, what a cool story. Yeah. There are some history plaques around. Like if we were, we were going to walk up to Morrow rock. Yeah. We decided not to, cause we were tired. There's a really cool plaque there about one of the first actual park rangers that was mm. responsible for after this is years after Colonel yeah. Young was there. Um but I've never seen anything about him on a plaque. Yeah. But he does have spots in the gift shop cuz obviously we bought it. Yeah. Uh, There's a monument to him uh in Ohio. Okay. Uh, so I I was I briefly just looked that up but yeah. His yeah. his monument whatever one of his monuments is in Ohio. Well it's crazy that We've never heard of this guy, too. Right. I think that's the thing that got me at the end. I was like, why the fuck haven't we heard of this guy? Yeah. Like, we're so big on cons. Like, not just us, me and you, but, like, a lot of other people. Like, every, if you say the words John Muir right, or Theodore Roosevelt, that's a exactly. fairly common thing. But this yep. guy had arguably bigger influence and just as important influence. Yeah. But we've never heard of him. I think that in the grand scheme of, like, conservation work in general... It's filled, and this is probably the same in any industry, any anything. There's a lot of people that never get named that were responsible for great things, and we just don't know about it. Yeah. Um, we remember things based on our memory and what we heard, and as and at some point, you know, Charles Young's story was lost to the majority of people. That's why I do a thing <laughs> when I'm at work. When I replace like an electrical pedestal or water heater or whatever, I put my initials on it 
and the date. And part of it is like, so people know, but also it's like, oh, at the, on this day, CRM replaced this thing. You know what? I, I don't know. I appreciate that stuff when I find it, like on my truck, mm-hmm. it says when the, the engine was replaced August 28th of 1958. And I wish there was names on it. I, you know what I mean? I, w- yeah. I wish that there was more to that, but that's the kind of stuff that I think it connects people to something deeper with whatever it is that they're doing. And I, I appreciate that. And I think most people appreciate that once they actually slow down and, and, and allow themselves to sort of dive into yeah. to something. But yeah, Charles, I mean, that's Charles Young. Super cool. Yeah. But I, I, the, the people that you never hear about are the ones that often make the most impact. Yeah. That's what the weekly warrior is about, man. That's what it's all about. Yeah. He mean, that's what it's, what it's all about. This yeah. is a perfect story to highlight on this podcast. Thanks for sharing. I, was, I didn't know what to expect from that, and it was far su- surpassed any of my expectations. With that, we'll be back next week. We like meat. We like meat.